Good evening, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 55. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we have a wonderful guest, Amit Majmadar, is here. Um, he said poems in uh, the current issue of Rattle, which subscribers are about to get any day now. Um, my bulk mail package just arrived on my porch last night. Um, and they were too heavy for the FedEx guy to walk up the driveway, actually. He left him at the end of the driveway. Um, that's how great the issue is, I think. Um, now, before we start, I should say Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995, and we just do it because we love literature. And if you love the things that we do as much as we do, please do click the like button. Um, share this, tell your friends, no matter where you're watching this, whether it's live or after the fact on something like um, iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever, um, all you have to do is give us a rating or click something so that the computers know that you like what we do. Um, and that would be very much appreciated. Now, um, to start off with a warm-up poem, um, I just clicked the random button a couple times and um, came on this poem, which I thought would be fun to read. This is um, Michelle Bidding. Uh, from rattle number 27 and this is um the sacrifice and there's no audio so i have to read it for you but um i was thinking this you know right now a lot of people are um trying to deal with homeschooling for the first time and it's a tough time for parents really and us too and um so this is a, a good poem i thought to read for um for tonight this is uh, michelle bidding the sacrifice i think about how you stayed up nights mother drinking coffee at your sewing machine. The time you never went to bed, finish, finishing my Isadora Duncan costume, diaphanous number cut from a swell of black crepe for the mad grief dance after her children accidentally drowned. Remember waking to find the garment realized, dark offering you draped across the ironing board, the fastidiously stitched seams that stroked my just-coming curves so I'd be beautiful, Drunk in the lights of my junior high stage, and you out there in the hushed cool of your reserved seat, hands folded, resting now, the little bobbin of your heart spinning inside its quiet nook, while you watched me do the hard, privileged work of feeling for both of us. That was Michelle Bidding from round number 27 with a sacrifice. Let's see what Michelle's been up to. I don't even know. Um, so this is her website, michellebidding.com. That's uh, Michelle, like you'd think, two L's, and then bidding, B-I-T-T-I-N-G dot com. And um, let's see, it looks like her most recent book is Broken Kingdom, and before that, The Couple Who Fell from Earth. So um, check those out at michellebidding.com. And that is our warm-up poem for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Now, um, today's guest, as I mentioned, is um, Amit Majmadar, and I've been really excited to um, talk to him since... Um, um, let me see, i got to find his uh, notes here. Since um, we published him for the first time in Poets Respond, I think back in April, and it was a poem about um, the COVID-19 um, dedicated to nurses and, and people who were going through all the really tough, scary work of, um, um, you know, facing this pandemic, um, the frontline warriors, really. And, um, and someone mentioned that, that um, Amit was the um, Poet Laureate of Ohio, the, the original poet laureate of Ohio from a few years ago, and so I looked him up and saw he's also a um, um, a radiologist. So so as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, this is an interesting guy. I really want to talk to him for the Rattlecast. So um, so so Amit Majmadar's books include uh, God Song, a verse translation of the Bhagavad Gita with commentary, 
Um, and his fourth collection, What He Did in Solitary, which you can see on screen right here, uh, just came out from Knopf. And it's a beautiful hardcover book right here. Um, it's his fourth collection of poetry. Um, his other ones have won many awards. He's also a, a really acclaimed novelist as well. And um, here he is. I'm at Maj Madar. Hey, I'm at how you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. It's great to have you um, on the show. Thanks so much for joining yeah, thank, us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for supporting my work uh, in the past few months. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's such a strange world um, where I had never heard of you before. And then we get this one poem, and then, um, and then we happen to accept another poem for the fall issue coming up, and then another Poets Respond poem. And I looked at your work, and you just have done so much stuff. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem so people can... Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, um, sure. So the first poem I'm going to read is actually the first poem from the new collection. And um, it's, I, I think I just kind of, I like reading it because it's got some nice rhymes in it. And it also kind of places me geographically and historically. I've, uh, I've grown up my whole life in Ohio. I've lived in Ohio almost my whole life. And so this is a very kind of a Midwestern poem. But it's simultaneously a Midwestern poem and a sort of bookish Indian kid poem at the same time. So it's called The Adventures of Amit Majmadar. Never laid a snare for nothing. Never caught a bullfrog. Broke my slingshot wishbone wishing. Never had a smoke. Never clipped a baseball card to thudder in the spokes. My fist clenched an ink pen. And I learned what to think when, and never swore no honest engine, and never spat, and never struck. Where you gone, Tom? Where you at, Huck? I call myself a man today, though I've never been a boy, and dug for treasure in the woods, or lost myself in play, feared dead for seven days until I showed up by my grave and made a sniffling town rejoice. Could have been a pirate, mama, at least a Robin Hood. But I was always up to something employable and good. And now I'm down here in this cave, crying, crying to be saved, though I reckon I am stuck. Where you gone, Tom? Where you at, Huck? That was uh, the first poem in the book, Adventure, The Adventures of Amit Majbadar from um, what he did in solitary um, and that kind of is a good segue poem to two things i was i want to talk about just how did you um first of all get into poetry you mentioned being a, a bookish kid from cleveland um yeah yeah you know it's uh i it just it, it happened very early um i think i was first into uh into prose and into fiction specifically into espionage fiction for some reason you know i i read like the usual stuff as a kid like you know, children's books and like Encyclopedia Brown. And, and then I, then I said to Sherlock Holmes, then I went straight to James Bond novels and I had like a <laughs> James Bond obsession for quite some time. And then I actually, the first things I ever wrote, um, were James Bond novels because I didn't understand copyright infringement. So <laughs> basically I, uh, I wrote a bunch of James Bond novels and then I wrote a bunch of other espionage novels. And this is when I was 12, 13, 14. And then Right around 14 years old, um, something I, I just got tired of that. I got tired of that whole genre. Um, I mean, I still I still enjoy a good spy novel every once in a while or a good thriller. Best one I recently read was called "I Am Pilgrim" by Terry Hayes. That's a good one. Um, but anyway, 
Um, and then suddenly I just um, took off in, into literature and I, I just read everything I could get my hands on. In the same way, a lot of kids will like devour comic books and, and, and just kind of really go deep into that. I just went really, really deep into classics, into, the class, into classical literature, mostly poetry. And, um, you know, I don't know why that was. Uh, it was just maybe momentum from a past life or something. But I was really fascinated by it. It never had that sort of staid feeling or the musty old tomes type of feeling that they get when you read it in a curricular format or like in the format of like it's like a school assignment or anything like that. And I never really enjoyed reading the books that I had to read. And so even when I was in college and I had the option to take whatever classes I wanted based on all these subjects and authors that I loved, I actually avoided that. So I ended up only doing two years of college, like kind of crushing it down in this accelerated thing. And all I took mostly were just science classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and because I, I wanted to keep that sacred. I want to keep that away from, you know, writing a paper on it, for, having to read X number of pages, writing a paper on it and turning it into, into an academic thing. I just left that for the sciences. And then I, I just kind of um, I ever since then, all through college, medical school, you know, residency, fellowship, everything to this day. Um, it's just it's something I barely even talk about. Like mm -hmm. the only time. I mean, I talked about it with my wife, but even then, like, you know, the in-depth conversations about literature and really old poetry and stuff like that, this only happens in these con kind of contexts, really, hmm. very, maybe once or twice a year, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, and how do you think um, your work outside of literature whatsoever as a radiologist, um, how does that yeah. impact your poetry? Because... Um, uh it's yeah. just one of the advices I always give people is to if you love poetry, like for younger people, I always say don't go into literature <laughs> and, and <laughs> no, do yeah. something else yeah. so that your your love of it can stay pure. Uh, like right. there's that advice that's like do what you love, um, but I kind of think it might be bad advice. I've always had that suspicion. Um, yeah. So so how does it? How do you like balance that relationship and and how do they relate to each other? Is there is there a way that they do, or are they just firewalled and it's like your own private world? Right. And, you know, there, there are times when I think that firewall does break down. I think that almost inevitably, I'm pretty sure that someone reading my work might, if they knew that I, w I had that background, they'd probably be able to see it in different ways. So in this book, for example, I have a whole set of poems about um, various neurological deficits, you know, mm -hmm. and I kind of I, I make poems out of them in the sense that they're like they're, they're love poems or they're poems, breakup poems, but they're their theme is like neurology and and, you know, other ways, probably in the the sort of way that I use language where there's a lot of mathematics and form and and um, things like that in the way I structure language. And that probably has a lot to do with both temperament and training. And I'm aware of that. Um, having said that, I don't write about medicine all that much, primarily, you know, partly because as a radiologist, you don't have that much human interaction. There's not that much meat for poetry in what I do on a daily basis, because if you if you say, OK, let's follow Amit around on his work day as a radiologist, I basically go down uh, in, in, into a, a dark room with a bunch of huge screens. And then I just start churning through cases. Mm -hmm. And those are just basically CTs and, you know, nuclear medicine scans and things like that. 
um, which are, they're just images, you know, they're images and I don't know whose they are. I, I just report them out and then I move on. So there's not that much human stuff that goes on. William Carlos Williams was an ob guy. He was at the very, you know, he first and last things, you know, he was at the moment of birth for so many people, you know, that's like, that has a lot of, you know, human value to it. Whereas what I do is very, very, you know, austere and scientific. Hmm. Um, to speak to what you said earlier um, about whether that's good advice, yeah, I don't know. It, it may not be the right advice for everybody. You know, everyone's different. And I know for me, I wanted, uh, you know, a job that wouldn't come home with me. So, you know, radiology, because you're not having these fraught human interactions, because you're not, you know, following a patient after you just operated on their heart and, and aorta, you know, you, you can finish your work and then that's quarantined off over here. And then it's just like the rest of your day is yours. Hmm. Um, that was one reason that was kind of attracted me to radiology. But in general, I, I was pretty sure that I, I, I just didn't want to, I wanted to keep it pure as I, you know, as you said, I, I wanted, I, I, and I just couldn't, um, for whatever reason, like I, I just don't, I don't like having that like fed to me. And I like being, I like having the option of getting bored with a book and just being like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I don't want to do this. And sometimes you circle back to it years later. I mean, I circled back to Ulysses, you know, James Joyce's Ulysses years after I first abandoned it. And it was a great experience. If you'd forced me to read it back when I was 19, when I first picked it up, it would have been a much, it would, it would have been, a, it wouldn't have been a pleasurable experience, which is what Ulysses was, you know, 10, 10 years later. So, so yeah, for me, I, I guess I'm just, uh, yeah, I just wanted to keep it you know, I wanted to cordon it off and keep it sacred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that seems like a wise sort of understanding to have with that college. I think the problem with college students is that we're too young usually to to think of things in those terms about how your life is going to actually feel going through, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do, well, do you want to read a few more poems and then we'll sure. talk some more? Sure. Yeah, anything you um, want is great. Yeah, I'll, I'll read one um, called... Uh, this one's called uh, The Beard. Okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is called The Beard. <clears throat> what was I like before this beard? More like, what was I not like? Who I was depended. I feared consensus because stupidity lies in numbers. Among believers, an atheist. Among atheists, a skeptic. Among skeptics and agnostic, among agnostics all emphatic on the apophatic, I laughed in my beard at market panics, fanaticism, Beyonce worship. Not that I had a beard back then. Neither did Ahmad Rahami on his driver's license. My doppelganger Afghan, mon semblable, I will not say mon frère. When the pictures of him bearded, beardless, bearded, showed up on 60 million screens, I partway through my third mile on an urban active treadmill. Well, shucks, I thought. And yes, that quaint Midwestern word appears in my internal monologues. Well, shucks, that bastard looks like me. Judging from the sidelong glances of flat-footed accountants running for their lives to either side of me, I was not the only one who thought so. The more they eyed me, the more my face began to itch. By mile five, this thing had bushed out. 
my face a time-lapse chia pet. And off the treadmill, I was running to my car for dear life and a chic quattro. I've tried a classic straight razor I got off Amazon and a brown electric shaver too. The shave is not so much not close enough as not a shave at all. Instead, a kind of endless passing of my hand, unbelieving through a hologram. The more folks look, the more it grows. You see, it's quite foreclosed the flux of me. I've gone from being e pluribus unum, and on that pluribus, every rider, me and me and me, to maybe him, unknowably. I try to talk to keep things chummy, because my silence, once the sign of my interiority, is now at best a sulk, at worst a seethe, Ahmad, Amit, Rahimi, him, me. Me with no way now to bear my true face veiled beneath, beneath his beard. I'm alone here now, among Americans a foreigner. When just last year I used to be among Americans, American. Yeah, that was uh, the beard from uh, yeah. um, its new book. Um, let me see. I'll, uh, I think uh, I'll read another one um, that I don't think I've read in public before. Um, I'll read this one about um, my son. And um, it's called The Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery Floor. Um, about a week ago, I published uh, an article in, in the New York Times uh, that was autobiographical. I usually don't write very much autobiography. Um, it was about, uh, it was in the New York Times parenting section, and it was about, it kind of, it tells the story of my son, um, you know, he, there, we had twins, our first kids were twins, and one of them, uh, one of them was normal, and the other one had uh, a life-threatening cardiac defect that required uh, three open-heart surgeries and in the near future will will probably require another one. Um, and so this is a poem that I wrote during one of those kind of extended stays, um, at, you know, post-op and in the hospital. And uh, I noticed that they put all these pictures of uh, kids um, that they had helped. And I thought about like, you know, the kids that may not have made it. And so this is called the pediatric cardiothoracic surgery floor. In all the hallways, glossy shots and capsule narratives of Rachel, Hassan, Haley, Moe, the ones who got to live. They never put up posters, do they? Of the ones they couldn't save. Naomi, Hunter, Mickey, Julie, whose hearts were just as brave. Until a seismographic zigzag ECG buckled the ribcage, tumbled the heart headlong into the sea. 
a dozen white coats clustered bedside or trooping up the stairs. The mother sobbing on her phone, assured and ushered clear, while a panicked student or panicked intern, two fingertips on Kyle's chest, compressed, 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 compressed. Ooh, that's a powerful poem. Yeah, both of those were. Uh, thanks for sharing both of those. Um, uh, one of the things that, that, that stands out in your work is the, is the formal elements. Um, there, there's a lot of rhyme in different forms. Um, is, that, is that part of your process? Like, how do you go about um, writing? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think rhyme is, you know, one of the many tools uh, in, in, in the tool belt of the poet. It is, I would argue, somewhat underutilized um, in, in contemporary poetry or in contemporary verse craft. Um, that's a pity. I think that... Um, it's very, it's very, uh, well, first of all, it can be very charming. It can, it can really add punch, but I also use it as a compositional aid. I think a lot of people, when they talk about rhyme or when they teach rhyme, it's kind of like the poetry is some pre-existing material, which you then kind of force into a rhymed uh, structure or container. And, and that's why form is often compared to chains, shackles, um, I mean, at one point, even Milton talks about, you know, the bondage of rhyme. Uh, and, and that's sort of, in my opinion, kind of the wrong way to, to go about it. I think that rhyme can often call a line into being behind it, where, you know, you know what the rhyme word is. And then it, it forces the invention to extemporize meaning, phrases, sentence structure, prior to that rhyme and that's where the creativity uh comes in and it can stir you and goad you to um to go outside of the the ruts of your of your thinking it can force or force divigations into the poem that surprise you and hence surprise the reader um and so rhyme is is very important to me um, and it is very, I don't necessarily think it's indispensable. I don't think meter is indispensable either. There are formal or formalist poets who are very dogmatic about these things. I'm not dogmatic at all. I was probably more dogmatic in my teenage years, um, regarding these things. Um, but over time I have come to regard all ways of sequencing words from prose all the way to, um, you know, very, very strict forms like the sansal, which is a form I occasionally write, which simultaneously meets the criteria of the sonnet and the ghazal. You know, that whole spectrum of prose, you know, which is irregularly irregular rhythm without line breaks, all the way to, you know, extensively internally rhymed um, poems with refrains and things like that, regular meter, hard end rhyme, hard end stopped lines, I regard all those things as different ways of producing effects on the reader, different ways of goading the invention, goading creativity, um, and coaxing yourself to become a better poet uh, than you may be um, if you're just letting it all go. Um, and uh, and it's and you know I think the other thing is that it has to do with practice. I mean I've been doing, I mean my earliest poems are are rhymed poems for the most part. I think the earliest 
documented poem of mine that I can that I have memorized is something I wrote when I was 16. It's an, a Dickinsonian quatrain called Picnic, and it goes: There is much casual in death, much random at our last. If God chatting on a lawn were picking at the grass, and that's me at 16, and I and I you know that I still do that. I still write in that form, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and to this day, and uh, and uh, you know, that's so. I mean, that's just it's just it's just one of my many tools, and and I love it. I love I, I I love it. I respond very strongly to it. Does that play into? There's these refrain kind of or, or section breaks in the book that um, are sort of epigrammatic, and right. all about the self. And um, one of the ones at the very beginning, um, you say, "I believe the I who writes here isn't me." Um, right. And, and can you talk a little bit about that, about, about what, what the self is that writes and, and, and what you were doing with these sections in the book? Oh, yeah, too? yeah. So, so the, the section breaks, um, you know, each section um, of the book almost is, you could even consider it a freestanding chapbook in many cases. The poems are thematically linked. There's an entire sequence of letters to myself in my next incarnation. Um, and and the, the, each one of those section breaks is... Um, prefaced with a triolet about selfhood. What he did in solitary is an interesting title for a variety of reasons, Part one of which is the fact that it, even though it was decided over a year ago, it ended up getting this new meaning in the era of quarantine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, what I wanted to do with that is, you know, each section is prefaced with a triolet. And those triolets all deal with selfhood. And it, you realize that even though the poet is one person in solitary, in this solitary act of creating poetry, there are many selves that write. And not to get too uh, sort of, uh, you know, tangential, but because you asked, uh, um, as far as the self is concerned, the self has a very, very profound um, significance in the history of uh, Vedantic or Hindu philosophy. And as you know, I translated the Bhagavad Gita. And the, one of the words that is commonly translated as soul actually is the word Atman, and it actually translates as self, right? And so every time I use the word self in the back of my head, I'm thinking of the Sanskrit term that actually is synonymous with, you know, it means the soul. It's the, it's the element of you that is most quintessential and that transmigrates from birth to birth. And so, and so the, uh, as far as the triolet that you're referring to, it goes like this. These are technically the first lines in the book. I am no writer. I believe the I who writes here isn't me. When the I in me gets up and leaves, who's writing this? Do I believe myself, the stranger who conceives my self-estranged identity? A writer's no one. If you believe the I who writes here, is this me? And, And I think one of the you know what I was getting at there is that there is a, a way. You know, there are different ways of writing. A lot of writers in the contemporary world write from their personal experience, their biographical background, or their background. Their bio, biographical data is never very far from the words on the page. It informs the words on the page. It often. Um, it is often one of the things on which the appeal of their work is based. And there's another way, perhaps an older way, of going about this same the poems, 
which involves self-abnegation, self-transcendence, um, entering the other, entering someone else, and writing from a different perspective. Perhaps writing from the perspective of someone that you may be reborn as in the future, right? And so um, in, in my own fiction, I've written from the perspective of uh, a ghost in 1947 India, I wrote the next another one after that from a from the from the perspective of an elderly grandmother facing the her end of life issues, um, and so I, what I do in my fiction and what I do in my poetry is a form of self negation. It is a form of concentration that dovetails with religious praxis because self abnegation and self transcendence are very very central to you know the philosophy of the Gita, the philosophy of the Vedanta, and the Hindu tradition in general. This is not, you know, it is, it is something where, you know, you, you want yourself or your atma to eventually merge back into the divine. And that involves dissolution. Nirvana literally means snuffing or extinction or the extinction is of a flame is technically what nirvana means. And, and that's the, the sort of the etymological background of that word, of that term. Um, and so, so all of those things inform how, how I approach uh, the I or the self in my poems, and you know it is it is pretty reliably not me if I'm using the word I mm -hmm. <laughs> in my in my work. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned translating the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Um, why did you go about doing that? Um, like, what 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 drove you to do it? Well, I, I mean, I wanted to I wanted to uh, a better way to read it. I wanted uh, to read it as thoroughly as possible because you know. It, it, the, the translations that are out there are, in many cases, terrible, inaccurate, and unbeautiful. Hmm. And, and that was something that had always bothered me because I knew how it sounded in, in, in the original Sanskrit. And it has this power, you know, dharmakshetre, kurukshetre, samaveta yuyutsava, mamaka pandavascheva, kimmakurvata sanjaya. And then you translate that into this sort of like long-winded, prosy, uh, prosy, almost like philosophical treatise type language that it gets translated into, and it's wrong. That's wrong. That's a it's a violation. It shouldn't be like that. That's not what it's like. It's a poem. It's a poem first and foremost. And and I felt that you know I had spent so much time honing my craft and honing verse, you know, my ability to to write in in meter, rhyme, free verse, this, that, the other, prose, all these things. I'd spent so much time doing that, and I'd done it mostly for selfish reasons, to get a poem published, to create something beautiful, to create something that would make people think I was a good poet. Um, at some point, you have to give back. Mm -hmm. You have to give back to the one who gave you intellect, gave you life, gave you the ability, gave you language, and gave you the, the power to, to read and write, and that is the divine, that is... That is um, that is, and also that is that that is the the Indian tradition, the Indian re religious tradition, which has never been, uh, uh, which is which, but really my my discovery of that uh, is basically coeval with my discovery of literature. Um, I when I was eleven, twelve, I just started reading. I, at the same time that I was getting into you know reading <laughs> James Bond novels and all that kind of stuff, I was also getting into the Upanishads. So it was this weird schizophrenic thing, and then um, you know I. I 
and that's that's just kind of where I came up. Even even then, even all the way back when I was 12, 13 years old, I was like diving into that stuff. I don't know how much I understood it, but I clearly soaked in to some extent because it's kind of like my operating system now. So so really translating the Gita was was had both a selfless and a selfish motive. The selfless motive was that I wanted to give back to the to the tradition. I wanted to give back to the ancestors, give back to the divine. And also the selfish motive of wanting to wanting a better way to read it and wanting to create a work of art that I would be proud to put my name to in a very selfish or vain way that look, this is and I still believe this. I think this is probably the best translation into English verse that you're ever going to find of this particular scripture. And and I'm proud of that in a very Amit is proud of it sort of way. So it's selfless and selfish at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to have to find that because I, um, I, it's been 20 years since I've read it. And I do remember thinking, um, it was when I was you know, starting to study poetry too, and I, I did yeah. Eastern religion in college. And I remember thinking that you could tell that the poetry was there, but it wasn't coming across in the translation. It doesn't you're come reading. across. No, no, yeah. no, it does not. Yeah. I'm actually translating it again. You'll be interested to know. Um, I'm now translating it again into alliterative verse. Interesting. So, hmm. yeah, so so um, that has its own power and it has its own feel to it. And so not one line corresponds between my first translation and this current translation that I'm I'm kind of I've translated half of it already, but I've come up with this other way, other thing that I'm going to do. And it's it's a long story. I won't go into it, but uh, it's going to be both. Um, I won't go into it, but uh, <laughs> it's it's but the, the translation itself is going to be. Um, into alliterative verse and it and it, it really works that way and i wish i'd kind of thought of it earlier but I, I plan to keep translating it forever it's just kind of be a long-term translation after translation after translation at some point i intend after the alliterative verse translation i'm going to translate it into rhyme hmm. which will be interesting to see if i can do that how is it in the sanskrit are there are there is there alliterative uh, it's, it's, or is it so, so it, in in the sanskrit there's two main metrical um two main meters that it's in it's very interesting you should ask that because I just started this um, informal lecture series on YouTube about God Song, and the next one that I'm going to be doing is a collaborative one with my wife where I'm going to talk about what it sounds like in the in the original. But basically, there's two meters. One of them is the meter that I that I just um, uh, you know re recited earlier. And then there's another one which often occurs at times of expansion. So there's a point in the Gita, which I'm sure you remember, where Krishna shows like the universal form of the divine, right? And at that point, all the verses go into this longer meter with a slower, like dun 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 and and then so there's this longer meter and it's more majestic, and then there's the shorter one which is like dun. You know, actually, I translate the first time I translated the Gita. I translated it. I tried to translate it into the meters of the original. Mm -hmm. So it would be like, Krishna, I have no wish to kill, keen to kill, though my kinsmen are. You know, but I started losing data. I started losing. Um, you know, it, it was just a lossy. You know, the data transfer was lossy. So I was like, you, you got to be more faithful than this. Mm -hmm. So I, I did it a different way in God Song, but. Um, yeah, and so so that lecture is going to be up in a couple days, probably. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you want to read? And I should say before you do, um, that if anybody has any questions, I'll pass them along. So just put leave them in the chat window. I'm checking both uh, YouTube and Facebook. But do you want to read a couple more poems? Sure. Um, I'll read one that um, is coming out in this forthcoming um, 
uh, edition of Rattle. Yeah, sure. It's called uh, Naming the Child. <clears throat> and it goes like this. If life is sacred from the instant of conception, why doesn't anybody name miscarriages? Thousands of souls from day to day touch down. But earth to some is like a stopover in Newark. The unlucky deplane and have to live there. While the rest, after a head count, take off again. On each of those heads is a call. A jellyfish kiss kippah. A contact lens that God drew off his own iris with the tip of his ring finger and set atop the fontanelle a protective seal. A name is a call. A full body scuba suit of call you echolocate yourself with when you dive into the world. I always had a thing for Mozart's middle name. With Amadeus in your name, how could you not be a genius? Love God, the imperative, the standing order. Love God even if he bleeds your almost baby boy out of the woman you love, the spigot turned, the life's mud gushing out. Amadeus provoked a hard no all those years ago before we had our twins. This time around, when she and I got home from the hospital, cradling four pounds, one ounce of namelessness, I sealed this almost newest sibling in a word that meant what I was trying hard to do again, calling our lost one in secret, love God. Absurd though it was to name what never lived, to order one who never learned to love, to love. The ears evolve at five weeks, in tandem with the heart's awoken wink, which is why music can do what it does to the pulse. Did he know our voices? Both hands cupped around my mouth, sealed to the baby bump, I hallooed across the amniotic sea. Did he know I loved his not yet presence more than God's not quite absence? Because one meant hope in this life for this life, while the other meant hope in the next. How is it possible to lose a thing you never had? I had no wise advice. I didn't offer music to calm her sobs. I was sobbing too. It felt damn good. Why stop? I didn't tell her I had named the crimson bits that life had chummed the waters of her with. I didn't call her baby. Didn't say love God. I didn't mention God at all. Yeah, that's a great poem. Thanks so much for reading that. That's from the uh, current issue of Rattle, which just came out. Rattle number 68 for subscribers. Um, it, it sort of ties in, really everything you've, you've read so far pretty much ties into this question. Um, uh, let me find it again so I can read it right. Um, this was, who asked it? And where was it? Um... I don't know where it was. So, so sorry, I can't say who asked it. But somebody asked about um, about what a poet, the, the place is for poetry in the contemporary world, kind of. Um, and, and you do write about, you have the, sort of a, a way that you go into this deeper sort of self-mode, I would say. But you're writing about things that are very in the present. Um, right. and, and, and so what, 
what is the place of a poet today? You know, you know, I'm, I'm sure your novels sell many more copies than your books of poetry. Um, right. Um, here, here's the question. This is Angela Gartner. It was, is a modern poet, sure. how do you think poetry fits in today's world? Right. Um, you know, the, the thing about poetry is, is that it finds a way um, no matter what. It always finds a way. Um, it is, it's one of those things which um, is, is not always in the forefront of a culture, and yet it is remarkably hard to kill. Um, and, you know, there's, that's, that's just, uh, you know, a fact. And so today, uh, you know, I think that poetry has a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's gotten very political, I think, in, in recent years. Um, and that's natural. I think that in a society like ours, where there is not very much in the way of a common religion or a common culture, there is such a thing as commonly held political convictions. Um, and the country tends to divide neatly kind of half and half. And for whatever, I mean, there's actually a variety of reasons for this, but, you know, poets tend to have the same political ideas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's, it's, it is when you're, when you're, you, you want, you know, when poets w write to various political ideas or political causes, they know that there's, they're preaching, you know, to, to acquire. And if you look historically, um, you know, Dante knew that his fellow uh, reader, that his readers were Catholics, right? And and they and he knew and and similarly, every every poet to a certain extent plays off of some pre-existing um, element in the culture uh, on, of their readers. And the more the more successfully they do that, the more successful they become as writers. Um, and so so I think that poetry does have uh, you know a political role uh, as far you know and and then you see that more and more in in our time. I myself actually edited a, a book of poems after Trump's election. Um, it, that was actually not intended to be a partisan collection. Hmm. And I, in, in the call, I specifically said, you can express anything. I'm just interested in quality. Because, you know, one side thinks it's the resistance against Trump, but, you know, the other side thinks that it's a resistance against the neoliberal world order. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you want to write about anything. You can go ahead. I, yeah. I, I have no judgment there. Naturally, 99.99, or maybe probably 100% mm -hmm. of the poems were all of one particular political orientation. And that's when I understood, I, it, I was, it became very clear to me, as if I, I mean, I kind of knew this already, but it became very clear to me that, look, poets have a uniform political orientation. That's not the case with radiologists who are just as highly educated. <laughs> yeah, radiologists, yeah. I have no idea what they believe politically. I have no idea. Until you ask them, you don't know. Mm -hmm. With poets, you can assume. You can assume. But... You know, and so so there's that. So there's that role for poetry today. Um, even if poets never did that or didn't try and get involved in activism or whatever, and they just wrote about you know deer and and skies and things like that, the the art would still survive. And it doesn't have to have you know front and center. You know, look at me. Look how look how many millions of people are listening or sharing my poem online or anything like that. It, it it's it's you know the poetry is going to last no matter what um it's it's lasted until now it's going to last well into the future at some point ai uh algorithms are going to be generating poetry 
and we'll all be out of a job. <laughs> but it will it will outlive us. That you can you can rely on that. Yeah, that AI poetry is so interesting. I think you know at that point it becomes so much about the idiosyncrasies of the author. You know, I think I think there'll always be um, a space for poets just because a poet is a unique person. And and, right, and I think right. that we'll have, I think there'll probably be, like right now there's a whole, um, especially on the Instagram poetry world, there's this whole plagiarism yeah. thing that's going uh -huh. on. And I think in the future, there'll be a sort of scandals where writers are just letting AI do it and sort of ruining it for everybody. Um, right, yeah, that's possible. I mean, I, I think I think what you're saying has a lot of merit. I think that many times, you know, they're, you know, just as Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare created all these characters and each of those characters has these like lines that are really memorable. I feel like poets, even when they're lyric poets and they don't necessarily write characters, they create a character and that character is themselves. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. Sylvia Plath is kind of like a character. It's kind of like, you know, there's Hamlet and Macbeth and Othello, and those are all happen to be created by Shakespeare. And they each have their personalities and their lines that are memorable to us. But then like Sylvia Plath, Lord Byron, you know, all these people, characters are larger than life now. They have their own narrative behind them. I wish I had an interesting life. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? It would help my poetry if I had a more interesting life <laughs> yeah. or if I had an interesting identity or something like that. Um, and I think actually I've, I've actually talked to poets who, who, who realize that even though they don't necessarily realize they're realizing it, which is that it's, it helps to have an interesting backstory. Mm -hmm. It helps to be, it helps to have an interesting life. And even if your poetry, you know, two poets both writing really good poems the poet who has an interesting life is going to get way more attraction than the guy who doesn't. Mm -hmm. All right. And if you're, you know, a square like me, <laughs> the, the deck is stacked against you. And I'm aware <laughs> of that. But such is life. Um, I want to go back to that um, you know, political poetry, since you did a political poetry anthology. Um, right. and, and you mentioned, you know, we do all know 99.99% of poets have a very similar worldview politically. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about it as through like the lens of religion a little bit. Um, but, mm -hmm. it, but you mentioned um, um, that there's reasons for that. What do you think the reasons are? Because it's something that I've sort of struggled with too. Like I've, I've tried, I tried to do a um, conservative poets issue once. And um, yeah, exactly. I thought, I thought wow, this will, be, this will be fascinating. <laughs> and then um, so I asked people that I knew to be conservative um, and um, nobody would even admit to that label except for yeah. one person who um, is Rachel Custer, who's sort of been hounded out of the profession pretty much. Oh, she was yeah. a guest before um, uh -huh. on the Rattlecast. But, um, but, but why do you think um, poets are, are um, so, so liberal-leaning? Sure, sure. So there, there's two reasons for that, um, in, or two large reasons for that. Um, one is psychological, mm -hmm. and the other is cultural. So the psychological reason is that the human brain has... In any environment or any situation, the human brain has one of two responses. Well, the one of the first question it asks itself when it's encountering another person or a, an event or anything, threat or non-threat. Now, in the human mind, that calculation is something that we do as individuals all the time. Okay, But at the collective level, there is uh, the same process takes place, and the threat, non-threat answer, you, you have to always have both of those sort of processes going on or assessments going on, the conservative will say threat. The liberal will say non-threat. And the reason liberals, and, and so how does this play into poetry? Poets are permeable. So, you know, money and culture cross borders, all right? And so 
liberals are open in a way that conservatives are not because liberals are always saying non-threat. So they want to take in. They want to learn. They're curious about the other, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they are very, and they're always wanting to sympathize with what is perceived to be the enemy because they want to see what is human in the enemy, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the idea, whereas on the other side, the conservative is more likely to say, that's a threat, you know, that needs to be cordoned off, right? And so poets tend to be liberal uh, primarily because they tend to be, they tend to have the psychological trait of openness. Yeah, so I was going to say the big five, I think it's yeah, open, exactly. high in so, openness, so they, low they in be, conscientiousness. Yeah they, have, they yeah. Have high, yeah, they have high openness, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and so that's the psychological reason. And then, then there's a cultural reason, which refers to what you talked about, which has to do with the fact that in any guild, you know, mm -hmm. in any collective, there are things that if you, you don't want to do anything that's going to get you blacklisted, right? You don't want anything that's going to get you, you know, shunned from the company of the elect, especially in a field like this where advancement is based largely on arbitrary measures. You arbitrarily decided to have me on here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Knopf arbitrarily decided to publish this book. And I have been arbitrarily not yet having won a major award. And that's just all arbitrariness, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you do something to piss the vast majority of these high openness people off, you, you, you're going to end up, you're, you're going to end up quote unquote hounded out of the profession in some way or another. They may not necessarily, they may not necessarily be anything, any real life, you know, physical consequences to it, but that's kind of this, those little things are what these things hinge on, right? Yeah, that's the thing, though, is that, um, you know, I have always thought about it going back through the years as about those big five personality traits and the way that yeah. those play out into political perspectives and um, and also avail avail availability bias, too, right. of course. But um, but the thing is, with openness, if poets are so high in openness, they should enjoy hearing other voices. Right. And so if you get if you publish a poem that has a different political view, they I, are I, not I, so open I, to I, it. I, I yeah. disagree with you on okay. that. I think that it's I think that in a in a in a society where. Um, you know, traditional notion. See, that's that's the other thing. Speaking of religion, to go to a religious perspective on it, I think that uh, increasingly in our time, politics has become a sort of secular religion, and that uh, duality is very Manichaean at this point. Mm. And disagreement is tantamount to evil, right? And you don't want to hear if if you're you're among the virtuous, you don't want to hear the opinion of the damned, right? Mm. You don't want to hear. You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to give Satan an audience, right? And this is how people increasingly re relate to it. And this is more common among younger generations. Probably the older you get, people. We we were raised, I think, to be like, oh, you want to hear a bunch of different opinions, and you want you want to get different. You want you want to be, expose yourself to different viewpoints. You know, that's old. That's old hat. That's not how things are anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and and the culture. You know, just the whole culture has changed. Cultures change all the time. Um, but I think politics has become religionized in, in a lot of ways. And it's not Eastern, you know, religion of tra self-transcendence and all that stuff. It's a, it's a different kind of religion that is more Manichaean, dualistic. Uh, and that's why they talk, you know, polarization, right? Polarization is another way of saying an intense dualistic mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see. That's what we see. And, and then it, it reflects itself in the structures of our politics.
Republican Democrat, right? Why are we a two party system? Yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah, I saw a meme um, today on Facebook, and it was, um, it's not, it's, it's, I think it said, um, it's not about voting Republican or Democrat. It's voting liberty versus tyranny. And mm-hmm. I realized that could mean completely different things depending on who posted it. And I didn't know this person well enough. And I was thinking, which is this a Republican saying that, that the left is tyrannical or is it a, you know, a a Democrat saying that Trump is tyranny and you really couldn't tell. They they each have their codes. So (laughs) basically one side calls the other side, Nazi, the other side, one side calls the other side, Stalinist. And that's just, (laughs) and so it goes, you know, it's just a total breakdown. And I hope, I hope discourse can come back. Um, (laughs) But I don't know, maybe it's wishful thinking. Don't get your hopes up, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. Well, this is why I wanted to have you on. Having a a person from a science perspective and and an analytical type talking about poetry is fascinating to me. Um, I want to get to a question, um, an easy question from, um, um, man, there's so many comments, it's hard to find the questions. Um, yeah, so so um, Kashiana Singh says, uh, uh, what poet is Amit uh, most inspired by currently? So we'll take oh, it down a right notch now, of the um, um, Right now, uh, so currently, who, ins- who has inspired me? I, I think I'll just, I, I, we can talk about living poets, I assume. Uh, so yeah, I, I think so. He yeah, said current. Yeah. yeah, she said currently. Yeah, current. so. yeah. so I, I really like Christian Wyman. Um, mm. I think his work is amazing, and uh, he does amazing things with, with you know, fought with the f- music of poetry. And he also just has um, just a, a really, you know, he has a really intense register that he's able to access. Hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that's, it's just, it, it, I, I'll read anything he writes, really. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Yeah. poetry, I, I'll, I'll read anything he writes. Yeah, I, it's interesting you say that, because I was actually thinking that reading your book, um, that it, it's a similar kind of, because um, there's the religious sort of heightened, it's like you both take the wor- real world, like that we're all living in, and then you sort of find a way to heighten it through poetry and through Thank formal elements, it's very too. very flattering yeah. to me, because uh, I do regard, I'm actually doing a class visit with him in a, in a, month, or, a couple, month or two, so, uh, over at Yale, so... Um, yeah, no, that's very flattering to me. I'm very honored that you would, you know, put us in the same category or, or that I evoked a memory of his no doubt superior work, uh, with mine. <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And even also, um, William Barr at the Poetry Foundation, have you read his like full fathom curve? No, it's, a, it's similar to Christian style and, and, um, interesting too. Um, but any other poets you can name drop right now? Is, is people oh, name like? drop? Oh, I always like A.E. Stallings. I've liked her work forever. Um, and she's always been an inspiration. Um, and, uh, and I think Joshua Mahegan, I like him as well, among formal poets that I'm thinking of. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, Jane Zwart's first book, which will be uh, put together in the near future. Um, uh, Jane and I actually naming the child, which I just read earlier, that's something that, uh, it's a poem that, um, well, what Jane and I do sometimes is we like mirror write. And so we'll send each other like a title and then we'll both extemporize a poem on that title. And um, she's gotten a bunch of those published and I've gotten a bunch of those published. And Naming the Child was actually one of them. I'm pretty sure, I think she's the one who proposed that title. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. a cool, cool yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Um, for a really quick question. Um, uh, Lakshmi Nair asks, um, what is your book um, Sitayana about? Sita's outlook versus Rama's? And I'm not sure what any of that means. Oh, so. yeah. So what he's talking about is uh, a novel. So I published novels in India mm-hmm. for the because I, I didn't necessarily submit them here to American publishers because 
Um, you know, the, it's not necessarily geared towards an American audience, but because it's, you know, Indian mythology, Indian history, things like that. So I actually published it with Penguin Random House in India with, you know, the subcontinent. Um, and so the, one of those books was Sitayana. And that book is, uh, was published in 2019. And it's a retelling of the Ramayana, which is one of the great epics of, um, of, of the Hindu tradition. And what I do in that is um, I focus on Sita, but I also tell it, I tell the whole story from, um, I, by jumping among different perspectives. And, you know, I go from this character to that character to this character to that character. And I circle back to Sita every once in a while. And that's how, um, and then I get, I get through the whole story having bounced out, bounced among different um, perspectives. And, and so that's, that's Sitayana. Um, and that was kind of like, I wrote that whole book very quickly. It was very, it felt like I was writing, you know, it's one of those poems that are given to you kind of just from beyond. Um, and I just wrote that, I just knocked that thing out and it was, and I just sent it out and it got accepted right away and it got published right away. And it felt really, um, it was almost as though every line of it wrote itself. Um, yeah. And I still remember what it felt like to have that, that book come through me. Um, really, how long did it take to write? I don't remember exactly, but it was just a, maybe a month or two, just very, very quickly. Partitions was like that as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that was my first novel back in 2011. And what's your sense of um, publishing in India um, versus the United States? I was wondering about that. We're, we're, I'm thinking about doing an Indian Poets issue coming up. Sure, um, yeah. And it feels like India, and some people have told me that India is kind of starved for poetry outlets. Um, and there's not uh, yeah, MFA I've, programs I've, like they're in the U.S. That. I've asked around about, you know, who, where they publish everything. And there's not that much of a market for it. You have to realize that when you speak, when you say poetry, mm -hmm. you're talking about, I think, I assume you're talking about English language poets. Yeah, right? that's the thing that I've yeah. heard is that it's yeah. so hard to find sort of common poetry culture because there's so many different languages. Right, right. So, so if you're talking about like English language poetry, you know, mm -hmm. that's a niche. But then there's like probably even in some cases larger niches of regional languages of India mm -hmm. um, or the national language of Hindi and all that. So, so there's just so many worlds that are overlapping there as far as poetry is concerned. Um, I have published poems in India with Indian magazines and, and journals and stuff like that occasionally. Um, as far as, you know, the, the, you know, the, the publishing world is concerned, you know, it's always mysterious to me, um, mm -hmm. what succeeds, what doesn't. Um, and I, and I, I don't even try and look at that too closely because it just yeah. frustrates me. Yeah. So, well, so, I think it's so, mysterious to publishers too, is a thing. Like you never know what is going to you know take off and, and, you know, just with right, the press, right. I don't know if people know this, but the, usually there's one book a year that f underwrites every other book a press does. That's kind of how it goes. And, and the they, fact that exactly. nobody knows which book it is, is what allows well, there to be so many. Know, they do know <laughs> often if it's, if it's a known commodity. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. yeah. If it's a known commodity, they know, like you had a bestseller last time you've written 18 Jack Reacher novels <laughs> this one's gonna do okay you know yeah. so so if you're not a known commodity mm -hmm. then it's a crapshoot for them yeah and yeah it's a weird business a, model it's it a very it's a, weird it's a fascinating thing because if, if it wasn't for that if it was known nobody would ever get published you know right it's just right. the fact that you need to publish 25 books in order to see which one's gonna take off that, right. that makes right. it possible and, and, for, that's, yeah. and that's weird and and that's it's it's uh and I and I've talked to some people about it and I think in the in the old days it was quite sustainable because there were a lot of independently wealthy people who started these publishing houses in New York City and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it was a very, very kind of closed uh, 
uh, almost like it, it almost had the role. They almost had the role sometimes of those those old dukes or patrons, you know, of the arts, you know. And now it's it's very much, you know, it is very much a business, and it is very it's very it, it, it publishers don't know either. They don't know either, and so there's no way you can go into it being certain like, oh, I've written this one really well. It's gonna take off. <laughs> That just that's just not it's not a rational way of looking at it, and I don't think even publishers look at that look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this has been such an interesting conversation. We're kind of talking too much, I think. Do, do you mind going over time a little bit? And I want to oh, no, do more of your poems. Do. You got nothing? I'm, okay. I'm hanging out. Yeah, and I'm you're on vacation this week. You told me. Yeah, so. I'm on vacation this yeah, week, so enjoy. everything is open. everything is free floating. So, do you want to do maybe like one poem, a little bit more, another question from the audience, and then a last poem? So, like two more poems. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. Um, so let us let me read um, something. Uh, uh, let me read this one. It's called appropriately enough. It's called virus. Ah, perfect. It, what page? <laughs> two. What page? Uh, the page is eighty-two. Okay. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this book too, which you sort of touched on before is that it, it, it weirdly seems like it presages what we're going through there was like a one of them was a um like a supply guide for up the apocalypse or something like yeah. that too and yeah. Uh, yeah that's in there too yeah but i'll weird. tell you what was even weirder is like the last collection dot head which was published in 2016 that one had something called pandemic guzzle in it <laughs> it had a poem called pandemic guzzle that's that's weird it is anyway yeah. um so this is called virus Neither video nor bacterium. Doorknob slobber, droplet-born mysterium. Born of nothing, knowing only how to breed. Like some dandelion clockless dandelion seed. Protean po protein. Hijacker, safe cracker. Magical papyrus scrap of genome. Sealed with a cork to sail the maelstrom, mimetic malice, code and chalice. Yours the message all the muses sing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Yeah, that was the virus from, uh, from Amit's newest book. Um, let me try to see if I have another question. If not, I will just ask you my um, personal question that I was wondering about. Um, are there any other questions that I missed? There are a lot of comments on this thread. Thanks, everybody, for being so um, so engaged. It's really nice. Um, what, what I wanted to talk about, and I have no idea how to form this question, but reading your book, I was very curious about your um, your cosmology. And you mentioned um, reincarnation and things mm -hmm. before. Um, and that's just something that's always fascinated me. And, and, you meant, and we talked just seconds ago about um, the way some of your poems and your books have sort of presaged events, kind of. <laughs> and there's yeah. just some grand mystery in the world that I feel like poets and just artists in general tap into. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know... You know, and, and I don't know what happens when we die, you know? And right. so, so what do you think? Like, what is your, what is your cosmology of the world? Like, what is existence? I, I don't know how to ask this question, but yeah, I'm curious yeah, to hear what that, you think about, the, about that's life. That's the first time I've been asked that in a literary <laughs> interview or any interview. <laughs> but, you know, um, well, first of all, I would say get, get God song because basically, for better or worse, I kind of just, I kind of have been, have a lot of that has been based on, on the Gita, on the mm -hmm. Bhagavad Gita which is in turn the quintessence of the Upanishads, which are in turn 
you know, the earliest metaphysical questings of the Indic civilization predating the Buddha, um, that's, that's just where I come from, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, I got momentum from a past life. I've been doing this. I, I was like drawn to that stuff when I was still a preteen, you know what I'm saying? So, so clearly I, I do believe that even though I know that rationally, mm -hmm. you know, who knows, we just turn into nitrogen or whatever, but that's the body, right? Yeah. But yeah. And, and so I don't necessarily, um, know any of that stuff. Uh, in that sense, I guess I'm an agnostic because, but that's almost like a form of humility, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. You could you could die and then show up and and then you're in hell with all this fire going everywhere because you didn't believe the right thing, and it's kind of like wow that they they turned out to be right, you know they turned out to be right. Who knows? You know nobody knows. And in fact, there's one of the the earliest Vedic hymns from the Rig Veda called the Nasadiya Sukta, which you can look up. It's literally one of the first expressions of just this agnostic doubt about, they literally say, only the gods, you know, they say, what, what happens, you know, what happens to this, blah, 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 only the gods know, unless they don't know, which is almost <laughs> something you never find in, in, yeah. in religious scripture, where they're yeah. like, unless they don't, who knows, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, um, it, it really prevents you from becoming a zealot about anything, mm -hmm. religion or politics. And in fact, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't, even people who, whose belief system condemns my grandmother to hell, I don't hate them. I only hate zealots. I hate zealots of my own religion. I hate mm -hmm. zealots of other people's religion. I hate political zealots. I just have a thing where I hate zealots. You know what I'm saying? I don't care what it is. You're a rigid thinker. You hate everybody who disagrees with you. I kind of start hating you. And that's just how it is. If you believe you disagree with me, I don't mind that at all. Most people disagree with me about stuff. Ever since I was a kid, everyone around me never mm -hmm. believes the same thing as me. Even when I'm around other poets, they're like, you know, most poets don't write like me. They don't, they're not into metered and rhyme and little formal things. They think that's like anti-poetry. You know, I, I don't care. That's great. That's, you do you, you know? And so, so what do I know? What is my cosmology? Uh, probably, you know, I definitely believe in reincarnation for sure. Um, and that's that's one of the central things I do believe in karma, in in its original, um, you know, again as as it's described in God's song, um, and I and I also believe that as souls, as a soul, and we all of us as souls are, um, or selves, I guess, are are in this process of uniting with our our origin, going back to the source, and that it's difficult. We're like salmon trying to swim upstream, right? Uh, and so, and so, yeah, we're going upstream against our passions, our desires, our uh, our 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 ignorance, and we go upstream against that, trying to get back to the source. Mm -hmm. That's probably the simplest way of, of of expressing it. It's expressed much more eloquently than that, and much more in depth than that in God's Song, which is mm -hmm. where I have some commentary on the Gita. And, and and the translation of the Gita itself, of course. Yeah. Rel yeah. Relative to that, I should probably read a letter to myself in my next incarnation. Yeah, yeah, please do. That's a great way to end it. First of all, I'm going to pass on. Um, Caitlin Buxbaum says that you have to write a poem now called Zealot. So that is your homework assignment. For <laughs> I have a whole novel called Zealot. <laughs> oh, do you? It's novel. Yes, oh, if wow. anyone wants to read it, I will. Uh, actually, it will, I may actually publish it, actually. Hmm. It's, it's, it's. I, I, I think it's one of the best things I've written, actually. It's kind of funny oh, that wow. she, she should mention that. <laughs> yeah. It's like a whole like 500-page novel. Oh, wow. Um, 
<laughs> so anyway, this is called Letters to Myself in My Next Incarnation. In what page? And that's the whole sequence, the whole section, but I'm only gonna read the first one. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna read the first one. It's on page 69. Okay. So this is the first of uh, the, uh, the letters to myself in my next incarnation. Hello again from who you were before. Hello before to who I'll be again. I think we both knew this was going to be awkward and not just grammatically. I wanted to write you a note to familiarize you with the controls. But the body is a vehicle. The soul relearns how to drive by crashing into other bodies. This is what they call wisdom. And by they, I mean fools like us. And by wisdom, I mean, like Plato, memory. What I love here, poems and women mostly. I know you can't remember, but they were worthy of my love because they fooled me into wisdom using pleasure. If you are reading this, I am already dead. If you are reading this, I am already living. Stranger, I have no advice for you. I only wrote this because I was lonely and wanted someone to talk to, even if it was only myself. Why do we write anything if not to pass along a valediction from the echo whose echo we are? If not to say to the echo we expect to become, hello, hello, hello. Thank you. Awesome. That was a great way to end it. Thanks so much. And I love that line. That was one of the ones I pulled out, the line about um, they fooled me into wisdom using pleasure. What a great line that is. That's what um, our poetry ideally does, I guess. Yeah, it really is. I think that might be one of the, the best definitions of poetry I've heard. Um, <laughs> so thanks so much, Amit. That was um, just wonderful to uh, talk to you. Really fun conversation. Great poems. I hope everybody picks up your book um, and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, yeah, so that was Amit Majmadar um, with his newest book. Um, beautiful hardcover here from uh, Knopf. What he did in Solitary. And the cool hummingbird cover there. Hope you all enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that discussion. Um, now, let's move on to the open mic portion of the show. Um, and, and as always, this is prompt-based. So we had a prompt two weeks ago because we had this um, um, pre-recorded show with Paul E. Nelson last week. So um, the the prompt for... i got to find my stuff. I'm a little unsituated here. The prompt for... Um, Last week was, um, here you go, write a poem that is entirely dialogue. That was last week's prompt. So if you have a poem um, that was um, written in entirely dialogue, feel free to send it to us. Um, the phone number I'll put on the screen now. Um, you can email your poem to openmic at rattle.com if you haven't yet. And then um, either call over phone 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, and um, I will call you back when the time is right. Or send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word. Just say, "Hey, I want to read a poem," and I will put you on. It'll put you on the list, and I'll call you when uh, when it's your turn. 
So um, for this week's prompt, I am sorry to say, but um, I came up blank. Um, I didn't have anything. I, I, I always carve out um, an hour right before the show to write a poem, and I just wasn't feeling it. Um, so I sat there and sort of stared at the page and daydreamed and, and nothing came out. I should probably do this like the night before instead of the hour before. Um, but this is Megan's poem. This is, um, conversation between husband and wife nightly. And I can tell you, this is a true story every night. <laughs> um, this is Megan's poem conversation between husband and wife nightly. Do you want to watch something? Do you? Yeah. If it's something good. Okay. Find something good. Why do I always have to find something? Because you never like what I pick. Then pick something good. How about murder? They always find the victim in a lake, and it's always the husband. Romance? They meet in a coffee shop. The humor is as frothy as their cappuccinos. Horror? We figure out which idiot teenager will be the last one standing before we finish our drinks. Indie? There are violins and open car windows. The sadness was coming from inside the house. Fantasy? God, I'm so sick of dragons. Remember vampires? I almost miss them. Hey, do you remember that movie we watched a long time ago with that weird alien baby? Oh, yeah. Was the baby supposed to represent something? Fear, I think, or hopelessness. The crushing weight of existence in a post-industrial society. Or maybe the director was just high. Weren't we too? Yeah, yeah. So the office again, then? Do you even have to ask? So, um... Note to my mother, we never get high. That's just a, um, a, um, a poetic, what do you call it? It's like a fake poetic thing. But, um, but yeah, that's a true story otherwise of um, trying to pick movies. And you can guess who is um, me and who is Megan in, in the comments. I wonder if everybody can tell. So um, let's hear your poems. Um, who is first up? Looks like Angela Gartner. Let's do Angela. Uh, so how are you doing tonight? And I just on mute. Okay. How are you doing tonight? Good. Real good. <laughs> um, I actually, I was in your boat like last week. Um, I, um, I go to print for my magazine tomorrow. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, ah! Um, but I managed to do some, um, I managed to do like a poem. So, um, Okay, cool. That was really good. But I did, actually, I was going to hit it real quick. I'm sorry. Um, I had the draft, and then uh, you called right away. So I hope everyone's doing well. Um, I, I revised it just, like, very slightly, but um, it's, like, super revised. Um, it's not super revised, <laughs> but it was just, like, a slight revision. And let me just send it real quick to you. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, um. Okay, it's sent. <laughs> okay, let me hit refresh. See, I used to think that the the uh, email was like instantaneous, and now that I do these shows, I realize there's actually delays. Um, refresh. There it is. It, it took like fifteen seconds. Which, <laughs> but but when you have like these conversations that are live, you'd think that it would just like pop right over. I don't know where they're going. Probably going to like China and then back or something. Anyway, so it's youth that you wanted to read. Yeah, it's it's a true story, and it's kind of half dialogue, but then I kind of go then into, and it's hard as as a reporter. It's kind of hard to kind of 
go away from the norms of the reporter, kind of <laughs> norms of the AP style. So yeah. it's definitely kind of harder to write dialogue for me, I feel, um, especially even when I write fiction. It's like I'm always, you know, I'm, I, I wish I could do more metaphors in my poem, but my poems are always kind of, you know, I, I have that reporter where yeah, everything has yeah. to be kind of real. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you could use that as like a style, though. That could be like your thing, you know, like um, AP verse. Yeah, right? <laughs> that could be a thing, but I don't know. Maybe somebody would read it. But yeah, this is this is um something that actually happened, which it's it's pretty it's 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 a pretty memorable event in in our in our little life. But I'll I'll just read it cuz then I don't want to spoil it. So. Okay, go ahead. My 89-year-old grandfather did what? I say screaming in the phone. The chainsaw was his, my husband says. We didn't want to get in the way. What did my uncle do, I exclaim. He goes on with the story. Nothing. We just stood together in wonder. We wanted to tell him he should let us in, but we couldn't insult his fearless resolve to get the job done. I sat there imagining the scene. An Italian patriarch with safety glasses on, bent down, cutting through the wood of a rotten trunk. That was almost six years ago. He might not be as strong as he was in that moment, but his heart and soul is still more youthful than the new flowers blossoming where the tree once stood. Oh, very nice. Thanks so much, Angela. I love the uh, suspense of wondering what he was going to do with that chainsaw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, you know, he's, he's 95 and going on 96, and he's just... You know, he's he's this strong Italian, you know, he's he's our center of uh -huh. the family. Yeah, yeah. We got a lot of people like that in our old town. It's a, it's one of those places with uh, a lot of a lot of characters who who keep doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well cool. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. Good to see you. Good to see you. Have a great night. You too. Hey Caitlin, how are you doing tonight? Hold up. I <laughs> laggy. Wolf. Okay. I somehow knew. Oh, we'll call him back. I'm like, a bitch, he's going to call me in. Yep, yep, I'm not going to be ready. Be, you got to be prepared. So um, how are you doing tonight? And, uh, and what do you got for us? Pretty good. I actually did my first day of substitute teaching today since March um, in person. Oh, in person. And wow. So yes, you do in person I... in, uh, in, in Wasala? <laughs> is that right with salad i was saying that right wasilla wasilla okay sorry <laughs> yeah um so the whole borough which is basically a county um but we don't have counties um the whole borough is true to form doing a choice thing so mm -hmm. you can do it from home or you can do it in person um and so the school i was at today is the one i'm going to be at we subs had to choose a few and then the district assigns us one to prevent mm -hmm. more spreading than necessary. Um, and the school I go to is pretty small and they have, um, they, it's mostly online. And so kids are like in cubicles, uh -huh. six feet apart and we all wear masks. Um, but it was really nice because I, um, at spring break, I, I was subbing there like every day and then at spring break I couldn't come back um, because they weren't in person. And so I haven't seen these kids in five mm -hmm. months and it was really good to see some familiar faces. 
but um, anyway, um, <laughs> um, I have a poem called The Nocturnist. Okay, I got it. I'm ready whenever you're ready. And I'll just say it's uh, named after a podcast called The Nocturnists, hmm. plural, um, that I recently discovered, which was really cool. And I just used audio from that to make to make this interesting poem. well if you're gonna is it, if you're gonna give a recommendation what's it about what kind of podcast is it because i'm looking for a new new podcast i'm like running oh my out. gosh <laughs> check this out okay so the nocturnists it started as a medical podcast um just i don't know talking about medical things but this year it's basically been like a diary a hmm. covid diary of um you know all kinds of different physicians um, and then they recently did one specifically for um, black physicians. And so this episode, um, the people that I'm kind of quoting here, um, were for, they, they both happen to be black. So um, interesting. Okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of different episodes they have that are really interesting. Cool. Well, I'll check that out for sure. Okay, go ahead with your poem whenever you're ready. So it starts with a quote from this OBGYN in Northern California. And she says, such a horrifying privilege to be a physician these days. So many people feel like their lives don't matter. I feel the weight of trying to get it right for patients like you, just despairing that you're not going to get equal treatment that when you come to see me. I try to take my time to be thoughtful, to answer every question. You know, my mom taught me from the time that I was young that I would really have to advocate for myself to make a fuss in order to be heard because I'm black. If I'm going to get a doctor to listen to me, it's going to be hard work. Tears are their own language. I just want you to know I'm trusting you to take care of me and to treat me like your own sister. I'm trying to do my best, and I'm just not sure if it's good enough. Soy en los manos de Dios y ustedes. That is the weight of being a physician and having a patient's life in your hands. I am so humbled by your trust. I'm going to do everything I can. Very cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for letting me. Really interesting. Uh, We'll definitely check out that podcast, too. For sure. Yeah. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Okay. Let's go back to uh, Richard. He says uh, he had his figured out. It's ringing. Here he comes. Hey, Tim. Hey, Richard. Good to hear you. Um, good to hear you. Yeah. Still no no video anymore. But, yeah. I'm sorry. I haven't solved the camera problem. I yeah. did solve the senior-itis problem <laughs> that... Uh, um, I had I had the Facebook uh, page open, but I had well, it's a long story. You don't need to well, hear. It. Don't worry about it. I've, I've done that on the actual show before, where I had it was coming. It took forever to figure out it was coming out of my um, iPhone, which I had playing for the uh, Periscope like slingshot, and um, I just kept I could not figure out where it was coming from. So um, it, it happens. <laughs> Oh well, I, I apologize, and and I'll have to figure out this camera issue. It's, uh, yeah, I think if you if you um, just restart your your computer before um, the show, I think what it is is if you use some other app that's still like operating your camera. So okay. You, so so whatever it is, you have to like exit out completely, or else it'll still like 
be spying on you basically. Yeah. <laughs> so. okay. okay. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, I, you so know, what my, you write my, about? my face is not the best part of my poetry. So. <laughs> okay, but you had a great connection and a camera all the time. So it was nice to, to have a good one. Um, but anyway, what did you um, want to, or what did you uh, write about? Um, so I, I sent a poem the file, I think was called Lake of Fire, but uh, it was a poem uh, that actually fit two bills. One was the, the news last week, but also the uh, dialogue. Oh. Um, and it kind of speaks for itself. Okay, well, go ahead. It's, it's up for everybody. Okay. When my friend proclaims she loves the Jewish people, I hear the I am's of my demise afoot. And there's an epigraph, a quote from the president. That's for the evangelicals. You know, it's amazing with that. The evangelicals are more excited about that than the Jewish people. Poem. What do you think about, she asks, the UAE and Israel deal? I approve, I reply. Then she says, it's like the prophecy is near fulfilled. Whoa, I say. The prophecy where folks like me are gathered to perish in a pillar of fire? The one where you all ride white horses straight to heaven? She paused. I think it's a lake, a lake of fire. Then blinked and said, well, it has to happen sometime. Well, I remember that from uh, Poets Respond. You submitted that. And that was one of the ones I was, I was reading a couple of times this week. Um, was, was that a real conversation, can I ask? Uh, that... Pretty much. She never, she, there are a few, you know, poetic license, but yeah. it was, it has to happen sometime wow. was definitely there and the prophecy near fulfilled. I didn't have all the references about white horses and pillars of fire, but yeah. uh, I did ask the question in a way that prompted that answer. And yeah, it was surprising from that person, but not surprising given what I understand about the politics and the, mm -hmm. uh, the um, appeal of Israel to evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But 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 what a what a memorable and kind of horrifying thing to say. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Richard. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I'll work on the camera. Yeah, no problem. Have a good night. Okay, you too. Bye. Okay, who is left? Let's see. We have um. Make sure I have. Uh... Let's do Sally Dunn. It's the regular phone. Hey, Sally, it's Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share your poem? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, great. And, and what, what are you writing about? Um, well, I, think it, I think it speaks for itself. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I keep asking people that because it's kind of like a holdover from the uh, Poet Respond where sometimes it's worth it. And I, I, it really, every time I've said that, I, I realize that it doesn't really make sense to even ask. <laughs> but go, go ahead whenever you're ready. It's called He Never Heard Me, right? Yeah. Okay. He never heard me. Where were you today? I've been, I've been home all day. Answer me. I did. I'm talking to you. Not so loud, please. What's the matter with you? I've been here too long. Very nice. Thanks for sharing that. And that was Sally Dunn with He Never Heard Me. Um, yeah, thanks for calling and sharing that, Sally. Great poem. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Let's see. Let's call up uh, Michelle Parks. I'm going to find Michelle's poem. Hi, Hello. Hey, Michelle. How are you doing tonight? 
Good. Um, It's hard to hear you. Is it? Hmm. I don't know. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. So if you want to just go ahead and read your poem and we won't banter. Okay. Um, I'm bringing it up. It's, I've changed a couple of words, but nothing too detrimental, I don't think. Um, it's called Hotel Convos now. Okay. Mr. Iroll, I need to speak with the manager, please. Me, general manager. Certainly, sir. How may I assist you? Him. No, the general manager. Me, smiling brighter. Oh. Are you there? Yeah, we're still here. Just go ahead. Oh, my my screen dropped. Sorry. No, it's okay. Me, smiling brighter. Yes, sir. It is my pleasure. Casually pointing at name tag to be of help. Him, sighing. The water is too wet. I parrot. Too wet? Too wet, he sneers. To wit, I blink. Room 420, he huffs. I order another room sign. Maintenance, Scott, grab two. Me, where? Guess, he snickers. Unfolding the towels, I explain with solemnity to Mr. and Mrs. Happiness that while we are pleased you choose to celebrate your 50th anniversary with us, we are a family-friendly hotel. Please Leave the hot tub area and celebrate in your suite. Night Auditor Tiffany, 3 a.m. call. Michelle, the first time I I saw him on camera and told him he can't be streaking in the halls. I got him back in bed. He was just drunk, so I told him to sleep it off. Then I get to the front desk, and 20 minutes later, whoop, there it is. So I go up and tell him, that's two. Get your ass in bed or I'm calling the cops. Got him in bed. He was snoring, for fuck's sake. As soon as I hit the elevator door, I heard his ass snickering. So I locked him in his room. The police are on their way. Me laughing hysterically. Thank you, dear. They're all my dears. But Tiffany is live and let live, but take no bullshit. Vote for Tiffany. Tiffany, 5 a.m. Michelle. I've tried calling his room for his wife since 3.55. Like every morning for the last two months. I've gone up there. I can't break into it. Something's propped against Michelle. Tiffany, do you think he checked out? Michelle, Tiffany, my dear, I'll be right there. Oh, well, thanks for sharing that, Michelle. Powerful sad poem and and that's a real experience you had i remember right yeah i don't know why it's really hard to hear you on skype tonight um but um yeah but for those of you who don't know 420 to any seasoned hotel manager is a room sign you order in multiples because it is a code for marijuana yeah Yeah, that's true i never thought that but yeah people would be stealing that wouldn't they (laughs) oh definitely (laughs) It was a hoot. <laughs> okay, what? Much love to you all. Yeah, same to you. Have a good night, Michelle. You too. Bye. Okay, let's see. Um, I think there is one more person. Let's just get to this. this is Gail Hemmen. Uh, let's call up Gail, and I'll try to find her Gail's poem. Hello, good evening. Hey, Gail. It's Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share your poem today? Hi, Tim. Good evening. Um, <clears throat> Yes, I would be 
I'm happy to share a poem with you guys. I feel there's kind of a, a mellow, low-key vibe tonight here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you email it to me? Yeah. I'm having trouble finding it. Oh, thank you, Tim. I, I don't have it on email. This one just got a handwritten out, and I'm so sorry. Sometimes oh. I'm so busy, you know, with, with you know, work and life. And no problem uh, at all. Let, let's just hear it. Okay, this is um, this is uh, swimming, swimming words, swimming across the sky. We'll, we'll um, okay. The neighbor's voice, caregiver. I'm sorry. The neighbor's voice comes over the porch, a bit scorched like the sun or the sizzle of a frying pan. And her, as she tells her roommate, caregivers both, the day's updates. Are you getting detergent at Walmart? Do you think you can find the part for the pressure washer? Apricots are on sale this week. And the other, quieter, climbs the ladder, cleans the gutter, holds a cigarette, the talk, the talk of one, a lighter for both as she laughs a bit, moves the day along the side of the house. The first, her voice elated, she has someone to tell it to, her view, who understands. And yet she turns the volume up a bit louder for the outrage she sees every day, the porch and amphitheater, as she sings it out, that someone out there hears her over the noise and scorch. Someone hears her, records it onto the sky, as she sings out what she sees, the cry of all cries. Time as we hold it, handle it, flies, and for her it does fly. And she exhales it out, puts a cigarette out, and returns to her house. That they may come back in and come back out, help others, lift them, and lift themselves. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, excellent. And that was um, um, Gail, Gail Hemmen sharing a poem. Thanks so much, Gail. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, Gail, Gail Hemmen here, kind of a weird spelling, and... Um, yeah, just thinking about a uh, uh, quiet, you know, quiet in voice and kind of response to the quiet sometimes. Thank you, Tim. I sure yeah, appreciate yeah, it. For sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, so we have two more people to call, actually. I, I don't know why I thought we almost had everybody. We have uh, Jessica Dawson coming up. Let's call up Jessica. These are phone numbers. Um, let's see what Jessica had. She had Jig and the Man. Interesting. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jessica. How are you doing tonight? Good. Um, I always get worried when you're like, okay, we've got the last one. And I, yeah. I really think I have to start calling you earlier because um, <laughs> otherwise I end up being last, I think. And I just sit there as a bundle of nerves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Some people call right at like six o'clock or even before, honestly. But um, you're not, you're not last this time. There's um, um, someone else, Cameron Gray too. Um, so. Um, oh, Cameron. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, so, so um, what do you have? You have Jig and the Man, huh? Yeah. Um, when I saw that you presented the prompt two weeks ago, I immediately thought about Hills Like White Elephants, which I, I hope a lot of people are familiar with. Otherwise, um, they might be like, what? Uh, much like my boyfriend was when I had him read it. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I definitely am. I think most literary types are familiar with that. That's the Hemingway short story, to A Couple on a Train. Um, I don't know how much yeah. I should say about it, but yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, I kind of reimagined the conversation between Jig and the man, um, where she's a little bit stronger and, hmm. uh, just the, um, just also to say this part, because I don't know how obvious it might be, um, the white elephants for, you know, it's a representative of, um, uh, the thing you don't want to talk about, which in this case was Jim being Jig being pregnant and 
the American man didn't want it and blah, blah, blah. So in this, mm-hmm. I found out the color orange and also snakes represent fertility. So that might kind of help. This. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's hear it. That sounds interesting. Okay, um, so Jig and the Man. I can't drink. It's pretty hot. Okay, I'll have water. Beer won't hurt you. She'll have a beer. Gracias. Have you noticed all the orange snakes? I hate snakes. I wonder if they like it here. The desert is unforgiving. Have you made up your mind? Please, I won't drink this. Senorita, aqua por favor. Thank you. I think I have. It's not simple. Everything is perfectly simple. But you won't love me if I do. I love you now. And things are simple now. That's good. The way they are, it's better this way. What do you, but we could have the whole world. We have the whole world now. What do you think about the snakes? I think this heat is getting to us. I don't mind them one bit. Very nice. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jessica. That's a very interesting poem you just wrote there. It's um, I just really felt complicated it is to read. Like I was like, this is really <laughs> simple. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, thank you so much. Have a great night. Yeah, yeah, you too. Have a good night. Yeah, so if anybody hasn't read Hills Like White Elephants, one of the classic, um, really amazing short stories in that. And and if you haven't read it, that um, or if you have that that poem, um, it's really interesting. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of metaphors buried in that, both the the original and this version. Okay, one last poet. This is Cameron Gray again on the phone. And um, I know I saw Cameron's poem here. Okay. Hello. Hey, Cameron. How are you doing tonight? All right. Um, and you wanted to share um, your poem? Is this is it men and women in poetry? Yes. Okay. Oh, you wrote it really early, huh? Yeah, I did. <laughs> There's no um, last minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say, um, I, I I feel like when you're reading poems, you're you're reading people. And, you know, there's a lot of unconventional people out there. So I wrote a really odd, <laughs> oddly formed unconventional poem for unconventional people. Well, that's cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Let's go ahead okay. whenever, you're, whenever you're ready. Men and women and poetry. There has to be a structure, a whole structure. But what if the story wasn't built from structure? Not all of our emotions are concrete. Needs clear edges then. I need to see the breaks and pauses. Should be able to pull me in at a glance. Ha, now you want to get edgy with me? The man who chews on total sentences? There is no rhyme or reason to the way you talk. I'm listening, babe, but it's because I love you. I don't have to be anything when I talk. Nobody's publishing this. You don't even have to listen. No, you don't, and they aren't, and there again, I don't. But you are still talking. Maybe you're trying to solve a puzzle. Maybe you're recounting a memory. Maybe you're trying to make me smile. Maybe you're trying to get thoughts out instead of caging them in. For whatever reason, your assembly of atoms tries to communicate with my assembly of atoms. There's no rules, and I like it, and I'm listening. That's not what we were talking about. All I was saying was that for me to read a poem, it has to be neat. Carry a beat, count some syllables, do some homework. Oh, neat is fun, sure. Everyone is looking at neat. 
But there are so many beautiful messes out there. Everybody loves a rhythm, can't argue there. We all search for those recurring sounds. They keep our interest even when there is no weight in the words. But as a person who is still trying to overcome a syllable counting tick, she carries from the first grade, and a person who almost never did homework, I can comfortably say that I do not expect that from my poetry. And that's completely your decision. I don't tell you what to read. I don't think it has to be easy to be compelling. I don't think it has to be counting or bouncing in order for it to pass. Although if it does, bravo. But I'm not looking for a common structure. Maybe a common structure would pull everyone in. Sometimes those places can be very crowded. You can name anything a poem, I believe, as long as it makes you feel. And I hear you, but I don't think you get to call just anything a poem. It still needs some order, something that shows me there was an actual process at work. Oh, yeah? You, sir. You're a poem. You're a poem, because I've named you so. <laughs> very nice. That's Cameron Gray. I love that. I love the assembly of atoms. I love very fun poem. Thanks so much, Cameron. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think that was everybody for tonight. Thanks everybody. Another, another round of great poems. I feel every time I don't write one, I feel like I've let myself down in, in some deep and profound way. So I'll try to try to correct that for next time. And next time's prompt is, um, where is it? Uh, here we go. Next week's prompt will be, oops, that's not it. There it is. Next week's prompt, write a poem based on one of the top 100 most famous paintings. And uh, Megan provides a link here, thepopularist.com slash most famous paintings in the world. If you just type that into Google, you'll find it. Um, and, you know, it really doesn't have to be one of these top 100, I think, but just write a poem based on a very famous painting. Let's put it that way. And uh, that is your prompt for next week, an ekphrastic challenge, you might even say. Um, but this is an ephrastic challenge that is, um, up to you what to, um, share. And if you want to email me the, um, actual image or a link to the image, I can show it as you read too, or something like that, or include it in the document or something. We'll figure out a way. Um, so once again, that was the, um, prompt for next week, write a poem based on a very famous painting of your choice. Um, and you can use that list if you want. Um, that should be good, because I think the problem for me with this prompt this week is that I didn't have anything to start with. And so since I wasn't in the mood, I um, didn't have any, like, jumping off point. But this will give, you, give everyone a good jumping off point this week. Now, um, next week's guest on the old Rattlecast is um, Jennifer Perrine. Um, we published her starting way back in, I think, issue number 27, maybe. Um, she had these series of poems called Home Visits, which I'll have to talk about her. I don't know if she was a social worker or knew social workers and was writing about that. Um, um, I'm not sure what, what her history is, but there are poems about social workers and home visits. And then um, she's published several books since then. Um, she has a poem in the summer issue of Rattle. And her newest book, again, just came out, or actually it's going to come out September 1st. So um, she will be the guest talking about her poem again and or her book again and um that will be tuesday september 1st 9 p.m eastern rattlecast number 46 with jennifer perrine hope to see you then hope you had a great night and i will talk to you soon good night